crazy now, baby. Easy now, everything's gonna be alright. Oh, easy now, baby. Keep coming, daughter, keep coming. No, no, coming now. Oh, where am I? You washed up. Sorry? Welcome to the island of discarded women, my friend. I used to be somebody. Are you that woman on the radio? Your island job is peladora de papas. Uh, sorry, what? Potato peeler. 87% match for uh, your skills. Okay, that's not... Anyway, what is the second best match then? Host of the island podcast. Are you kidding me? No, no, see, that's me. That, that's perfect for me. I know I ain't got time for a poem. I just got time to cry. So the original idea for this podcast came from a need I had to speak up and speak out about societal norms and the ways in which the status quo has kept so many women from being heard. But it's hard to speak up if no one is listening, and it's even harder if you're actively being silenced. Our special guest, Jennifer, is a survivor of child sexual abuse within the family. In our conversation, she shares what happened when she decided to reveal to her extended family that she had been molested for years, starting when she was a kid. She's sharing her experience publicly now with the hope that other survivors will be empowered to break through the silence. For insight into this sensitive subject that is way too often suppressed, I also talk with Holly, a psychologist and art therapist who has worked with children and family issues for years. And we will list resources and hotline numbers for anyone who is experiencing the trauma of child sexual abuse and is looking for support. A gentle request from me that you please keep your heart and soul in mind if this topic is triggering for you. And to create the safest space for our conversations, we're just going with first names for this one. In March of 2018, Jennifer sent a letter to her older brother, calling him out for sexually molesting her for 10 years, starting when she was six and he was nine. I asked her if she'd ever brought up this abuse before the letter. Well, I had never talked about it with him. Okay. I had never brought it up ever since it had begun or ended. Um, And I had told my other siblings here and there, you know, over the past maybe 10 years or so, somehow or another, it had come up sort of in a, listen, this happened and, you know, I've been in a lot of therapy for it and I'm not really talking about it. But it wasn't until there was a, there was an incident where my my older brother used uh, sexually charged and sexually tinged insults uh, to me over social media and in through just personal texts that I decided to just cut him out of my life. And I wasn't saying anything to anybody why, I just needed to not have him in my life anymore. And which was really hard because we all worked together. We all had worked together. We sort of had a family product and a family face and a family business and all sorts of things. So I only brought it up to my mother out of necessity in the fall of 2017 because, you know, she's saying, hey, I know that people have fights and families and, you know, obviously we all have our difficulties with each other, but are you really not going to be uh, in the same room with this person anymore? Like what can be so horrible, basically? Like, come on, we can work through whatever it is that's the problem. 
and here I am, I'm, I'm almost, you know, I was 39 at the time and I didn't want to say anything to her because mostly I didn't want to be not believed, you know, cause I was, yeah. that was my biggest fear. Yeah. So it was pushed and pressed. Like you would imagine a mom would be like, what's the big deal? Why? You know, like, come on, we yeah. can, whatever. So I was just like, fuck it. I'm going to tell her. And here we were at my aunt's house rehearsing. Cause we're all musicians. Um, and I just started to tell her, I said, well, this is the reason why I'm, I'm not overreacting about anything. In fact, I'm underreacting and this is why. So I just sort of laid it out, started crying, of course, it was a very weird moment. Yeah. And, uh, and so I spilled it to her in November of 2017. And so when I turned 40 in February of 2018, uh, on my actual birthday, and I was pregnant with my now two-year-old son, and on my 40th birthday, I decided to, to just sort of have a big moment with myself, honor myself by going to my counselor, my therapist, and to just tell the whole story, all of the yucky parts and the scary parts and the shameful parts and the twisty, turny nature of it all. Tell one person the whole thing and just dig it up and dig it out. Uh, and that was February of 2018. And so I, I said to her, you know, so I told her the whole thing. She was, you know, very therapisty about it. It was great. She was very helpful in listening. And, uh, and I said, what do people do to, to ever confront this or fix this or handle this? You know, I mean, obviously you can't fix it, but yeah. how do you handle it? Yeah. And she said, well, you know, there's plenty of different ways. I, you know, um, I said, well, I just know that I'm not comfortable I'm just too scared to, to just go talk to him in person. And that the fear part has to do with him, you know, potentially saying it didn't happen. No, it was your idea. It was, you know, oh, you liked it. You, any of those scary things mm -hmm. that, that come from any sort of abuse, but especially from an older brother, which is very disturbing and stomach turning. And so I said, I wouldn't want to be in person. You know, how does this, how could you ever confront or heal or get anywhere if, if I'm not comfortable being in person. So she said, you know, some people write a letter. Yeah. It's, it's a really hard. Of course. Subject. Of course. But I plan on getting through this. Yeah. So, um, so she said, some people write a letter and you can write it with the intention of sending it, or you can write it, you know, without that pressure of thinking that you're going to send it. Mm -hmm. You can just write something and see what happens. Um, when you let yourself write what you would say if you were to confront, mm -hmm. you know? And so I took that task on, on my 40th birthday that day wow. in 2018, um, just in my car, uh, just on my phone, you know, in my notes, I just typed out a letter and I read it and reread it. And, and I thought, wow, this letter is, uh, this is what I want to say. And so I, I sent that letter then to my siblings and to my mom and just said, Hey, this is, this is therapist led. And in the letter, it says uh, nothing's public about it. I just really want to handle this, but I really want to be private about it. I just want to be private about it. And I just mm -hmm. want it to be a conversation in our immediate family. And that's it. So that's where the letter came from. And that's why it was written 
was to privately confront um, with this really cool family. I mean, we're all really cool people. I, I don't feel like it's a family that wouldn't be listening and accepting and and healing and 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 brave in the face of confrontation. So that's where the letter yeah. came from. So mm-hmm. your mother had not heard about any of this before that. She had no idea that it ever happened. Um, I was instructed, you know, by my older brother to be quiet. And yeah. the notion was from the get go, like this is something we'd both get in trouble, you know, like we have to, you're going to be quiet. I'm going to be quiet. And so it was quiet. So what did that little six-year-old, do you remember? I remember what the six-year-old felt because the first time that this ever happened was, you know, nighttime and he, you know, came in to my bed and it was, you know, I was going to sleep and I was like, what's going on? And it was sort of a shh, quiet, don't, you know, be quiet. We're just going to do something. We're going to try something. Just lay there, basically stay there. And, sh- and I was like, okay. And so he did what he did mm-hmm. and, and then left the bed. And then the next time that this happened, whenever it was the next night or the next week or whenever it was very soon after, I knew what was, why he was coming into my bed and I was scared and didn't know what to do. And so I just pretended to be asleep. Mm -hmm. And I pretended to be asleep for years Mm -hmm. while this was occurring on a regular basis. It wasn't even semi-regular. It was just regular until, you know, one night when prompted to say something or whatever, I said something and then the whole jig was up and, and I was clearly not asleep. And then, then it became an extra strange thing because it was so normalized years into it that uh, you just, you don't know. I mean, however old I was when, when it was clear I wasn't sleeping anymore, um, it just became normalized. And now that I was awake and this was still happening and not knowing what to do, the shame part multiplies by a thousand because you feel like you know it's wrong. It's supposed to not be happening. You're not in control of the situation. You can't tell anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's scary. And I think anybody who's listening to this, who has gone through this mm-hmm. knows that it just becomes this boil on your personality with this thick membrane of silence around it, mm. but it's just infecting you. That's all I can think of. It's like a, this thick membrane yeah. filled with disgusting pus. And you're just like, you can't bust this thing open because the membrane of silence is so thick and if you puncture it and force it open you're going to get an infection and die you know like it's this visceral shameful and you just have to ignore it you don't know what to do and so you do nothing you know when you want to be there and when you don't want to be there You know, I had experiences as a child, you know, once with a boy, once with a girl where it was true childhood experimentation of like, let's kiss and see what happens. Oh, you know, whatever. I mean, there's a clear 
clear difference. Mm-hmm. As a child, as an adolescent, as an adult, we mm-hmm. all know the difference between doing this because you're interested mm-hmm. and doing this because you're scared. Yeah. <laughs> There's a big difference. And you're six years old. Six. Yeah. Uh, this happened over a 10 year time span and it yeah. stopped when you were 16. Yeah. Around 16. Remind me why it stopped. Well, this is what's so super messed up about it. You know, uh, like I had said, things had become so normalized that it was just like, okay, well, I guess this is happening. Um, now we're teenagers. And of course we're in a house alone together. And my older brother, this had happened with, he had a girlfriend he had, he was in a relationship with somebody. And one day he came at me and uh, I said, uh, why are you doing this? You have somebody else to do this to who's in agreement with you. So yeah. back off. You don't need me for this anymore. Don't. And, and that was the actual end of it. And at that point when I was like, oh my God, he's not coming and doing this to me anymore. Of course, then there's a whole other level that makes me want to cry about like, wait a minute, why didn't I tell him to stop this before? Like, you know, like you go through this whole thing, like, wait a minute, all I had to say was stop and it would have stopped, you know, and it sort of is that, that, um, what are some of those images of, oh, like somebody who's struggling is drowning in in six inches of water. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Who's like, they don't know, they don't know that they can stand up, you know, they don't know it's just two feet of water. They're like, oh my God. They don't realize they can touch the bottom of the pool or the ocean or whatever. Boom, you're done. And that's what it felt like, which brought this whole other grossness to this boil in my guts, you know, like, oh my God, all I had to say was stop. Yeah. Is that my fault that I was, oh my God. You know, it's like, you can imagine it's. Of course. And anybody who's gone through this knows exactly what I'm talking about. You're like, wait a minute. Of course. All the fear that was implanted in my head about threatening or he because he was shaming to me obviously too during the whole thing of ugh. so you know if you start to say you know like no to anything in life even if he and I were talking about as children fighting about something else it could have been about Legos it could have been about anything yeah and whenever I would stand up to him and I remember this he would say something about the abuse to shock me and shame me and put me in my place. When you wrote the letter Mm -hmm. uh, and you sent it to your brother Mm -hmm. and you had already sent it to your family, how did he react? It was very much silence, you know, and I didn't even know if he had gotten the letter. So Weeks, maybe a month after I had sent it, uh, I had had a conversation with my mom that she had had a conversation with him two weeks prior. And I was like, wait a minute, what? You you did? Uh, what, what happened? And she's like, he admitted it. He was crying. He was shameful. He was very, very sad. And if, this was a big relief to me. Uh, because he admitted it, which is the scariest part of bringing any of it up. Sure. Um, and so I, I cried like I really hadn't expected to cry after I got off the phone with her, uh, just for the fact that he had admitted it at all. And I thought, wow, you know, if he's really sorry, 
and feels bad. And he had said some things to her that were very vulnerable, you know, and I was like, oh, okay, this resonates as true. This is amazing. Mm -hmm. So I thought, you know what, this is going to work to keep this in the family. This is really going to work. All he has to do is basically say those things to me. And I think we could go, you know, I think we could maybe go to some therapy as a family. We could go to therapy, maybe as brother and sister, you know, work through this. I can't believe it. My therapist is a genius. It worked. You know, I was like, this is really going to work. Big sigh of relief. Big cry was great. And then I never heard anything from him. So, and now it's 2021 and I still haven't heard anything from him. In September of 2018, she decided to share all of this on Facebook. I asked her what drove that decision. So months had gone by and there was no reply from him. And then immediate family members were just going on as though nothing had happened. So there Mm. was still happy birthday and there was still, uh, you know, hanging out and getting together and he's still invited to things. And I'm realizing, oh, I'm going to have to choose. I'm going to have to choose now because my family isn't enforcing anything. Like he's not going to say anything to go toward healing with me. I have decided to not be in the same room as him. Mm-hmm. And now that my immediate family knows, particularly the parent knows, I would think that there would be some sort of help in yeah. holding this person accountable. Like, hey, listen, you really need to handle this. We want to be able to have Thanksgiving and Christmas and whatever together, but we can't really do that, you know. Um, so until you get this handled, we're going to have to ask you to sit this stuff out, really. Something to help it heal because he wasn't doing it on its own. Or to even acknowledge that it had happened. To me. Yeah, to you. Okay, well, we heard about that. Okay, now let's go back to life. Right. Oh, he said he was sorry to somebody else. Yeah. Um, Okay, we're just going to move on. No big deal. And it wasn't that it was no big deal. It's just, I think really nobody knows what to do, you know? Right. And so they're asking me and, and of course the parent in the situation, and I'm sure in anybody else's situations, looking at two of her children. Mm-hmm. you know, like what? anybody who has children, you're like, Oh my God, what, how do I handle this? I want right. to, obviously one is damaged because of the other one. The one who did the damaging is clearly also damaged. Mm-hmm. So what do I do? Right. I'm not abandoning either of them. Uh, you know, and that was what, that's the tack that any parent would be struggling with. I think, you know, I love you both equally. You know, uh, you know, of course she loves us both equally. You know, it's, it's, difficult spot for a parent to be in and of course I can see that and anybody would uh and so I was only shocked when I brought it up to her in midsummer then late summer I said what's going on with this is there any movement it seems like you guys are just going on about normal things like no big deal you're having a birthday thing with them and like holidays are coming up and extended family gatherings are going to start coming up like I don't want to tell my extended family about this mm-hmm. and say, Hey, listen, my brother has to apologize to me for X, Y, Z, A, B, C, one, two, three, blah, blah, blue. Uh, can you please not invite him? So I don't, you know what? Yeah, I don't want to do right. that. And I also don't want to not show up for no reason because mm-hmm. I love my family and I want to be with them. So it's a very specifically weird situation and since the beginning of it i had said to the family 
I need help. I can't do this by myself, right. which is why you're, why you have this letter and, and why I need to hold some hands during this. Cause I'm scared. And this is a really big deal. I've been in therapy already for 20 years for this before I even brought it up to you guys, you know, like this is hard stuff. And so at that time, then in the summer, questions started coming my way uh, and statements that were like, you know, I just don't think you're telling us the whole story. And more questions that were a little more hair splitting, like he was sorry, but you know, now, I mean, I guess I have a new question for you. I mean, did he ever force you to do anything? And Mm. as we've already gone over, the MO was me pretending to be asleep. And even when I was awake, it was staying still. Mm -hmm. And so I had made a promise to myself that I was going to answer any questions that came my way from my family, because the truth is the truth. I mean, even though it's gross, I'm like, well, if you want to answer to that question, here it is. I don't have anything to hide. I just also don't want to relive every disgusting minute of this, but like, you know, who started it? Who ended it? These were very hurtful questions Mm -hmm. because it was an older person who was bigger, stronger, in charge of you, somebody you trusted, somebody who's threatening or or implying that you're going to be in trouble, um, getting your silence, getting your secrecy. Like I was upset that nobody was believing me. And now I shouldn't say nobody was believing me, but I was upset that I wasn't being believed by the entirety of my immediate family. Yes, of course, of course. Because everybody understood that it had happened and that it was bad and that he did this. Like I was believed to that extent, but then months in the, the notion of like, okay, so you were uh, pretending to be asleep. Okay. So, so you weren't saying no, then, you know, it's like, you were just letting him do it. So you have to realize that you have to take some responsibility. Like that's what felt like it was being implied that because he wasn't forcing me to do anything. And I say that in quotes um, that started to get up very upset because I thought he had admitted yeah, it was going to be handled in time. It didn't have to be right now. So in August, I start to have this pushback with not all of my immediate family, but there's pushback of like, wait a minute. So you have been having conversations with him and he is now removing himself. It seems mm-hmm. I'm not having conversations with him directly. Right. So I start to get more and more upset about this. And then in September, three things happened. One, my sister posted a very brave me too post about something that had happened to her an unwilling sort of sexual me too situation i was like way to go that empowered me as the whole me too movement did empower mm-hmm. all of us to speak out secondly there was a, a story on npr about a daughter who had just contacted npr and said no my father is running for political office oh, and man. he has been molesting me for years And here he is running for office and I'm just, I'm not going to be silent about this anymore. This is a big deal. And I I can't, I can't anymore. So that was the second thing that was upsetting and empowering to me to hear her speak her story. Yeah. And thirdly, we're in September of 2018 and I had, now I had had a child. I just had a child. I'm in fierce mama bear mode, but fierce mama bear mode or not. um, In September, I do another round of calls to my immediate family. And knowing that, you know, Me Too movements, full bore. I mean, it's been going for months at this point. And I know the holidays are around the corner. 
and I'm getting more and more upset about nothing happening. And I, I call and I go, so what's going on to each one of the immediate family members? Like we all know what happened. And so now what I'm going to just be at our aunts and uncles houses and nobody's going to stand up for me, speak up for me, draw some sort of line in the sand. But as they spoke and had more conversations with him and his justification and his thinking through and his whatever he's doing, then they started to see things a little differently, of course. And that's the scary part that you're going to go, oh my God, somehow he's going to justify it. And he's going to do to them what he did to me of like mm-hmm. making it somehow okay. Like I'm so scared of this. Mm-hmm. And in the midst of that was also a sentence of like, hey, you know, the letter that you wrote to him, maybe your brother wouldn't be so upset if you hadn't, you know, used the word shackles. Because in the letter, I'd said something about, you know, I'm freeing myself of these shackles and I realize these shackles aren't even mine, they're yours. That was how shackles was used in this letter. Which is really powerful. It's a really powerful image. It felt that way when I wrote it. It felt yeah. very powerful. It, it felt is. eloquent. It felt like, yes, you know, I'm not, I'm not here calling anybody names. I'm not swearing in this letter. I'm not uh, anything Jerry Springer, nothing like that is happening. Mm-hmm. Right. So how can they entertain that? It's baffling to me. And then finally, I, you know, talk with my parent, my living parent. I was like, I don't know what's going on. Why is nothing going on? And, and she just said, you know, listen, I can't force him to do anything. He knows how I feel. I can't force him to do anything. I'm not going to disown him. Mm-hmm. And uh, therefore, when, when he and I talk, we just talk about the good things. We just don't talk about it anymore. I can't do anything about it, basically. And, and I'm not uh, going to. And when I do talk to him, we just talk about the good things. And I said, what if everybody knew? Like, what if the other members of the family knew the truth? Do you think they would be like, hey, aren't you going to do something about that? Do you think anybody would think that might be a little weird? And she said to me at that point, well, if the whole family knew about this, they would have to hear both sides of the story, which sent me completely over the edge. It was the scariest thing for me to do to try to confront this gut boil in the first place Mm -hmm. and to do it so by the book especially in the me too movement era Mm -hmm. to do it so privately Mm -hmm. and respectfully emotionally responsible patiently following all the advice coloring in the lines i mean driving in the lane all the things and yet still nothing happens and i'm realizing that's it I don't have it in me anymore to push for help. Mm-hmm. I've already asked my very best. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't have it in me to be silent anymore. So now this heavy rock mm-hmm. of realization plows into my guts that nothing's going to happen. And in that moment, for me, Either that rock is going to become my headstone, I'm going to die under this, or it's going to be the mountaintop that I stand on top and I shout and I say, hey, if this is happening in my family, this has got to be happening in a billion families. Mm -hmm. And I stand here, let the chips fall where they fucking may. I am not going to let another six to 16-year-old girl be shamed into silence or boy, of course, 
be shamed into silence. And then when they finally responsibly bring it up quietly to their immediate family, even when the person admits to it, they don't do a thing. And so I'm like, no, I'm not going to let this happen to another adult Mm -hmm. or kid, Mm -hmm. any of these survivors, because it is the most floorless twilight zone feeling of my life where I felt like I was uh, rotating out in outer space, tetherless. Mm-hmm. In, in one moment, it's both the feeling that you're in outer space, surrounded by all of this expanse with no floor. And at the same time, you are the tiniest crying child in the corner of the room and nobody's coming to help. Yeah. Either one of those scenarios, you are insignificant. It's an insignificance. It's a worthlessness, a helplessness. Mm -hmm. It is enough to drive people to suicide. Mm -hmm. And like I said, feeling that feeling that I was just going to have to deal, they would rather say, Jenny, can you shut up about this, Mm -hmm. please? Um, I can't do anything about it. So stop. What? I don't know what to do. I don't know. You don't know what to do. Nobody knows what to do. They would rather just leave me with it mm-hmm. than stand up to him or anything and just say, hey, listen, pal, you're not invited then. If you're not going to just do the decent thing here. No, they listen to him. They start splitting hairs and asking me insinuating questions, telling me about the shackles thing. Um, but they care at the same time. They're not telling me out and out. We don't believe you. We don't have time for you. We don't care. They're saying you know, we believe you. We really care. Um, there's just nothing we can do. There's yeah. a literal sentence of, I can't deal with this came from one of my immediate family members. It's just too much for me. So I'm like, okay, got it. Yeah. I mean, it's understood. It's too much for you. And then I'm like, it feels like, again, I go, okay, my, my mistake mm. for asking for help. Yeah. I thought that I no. could. But I think the reason I thought I could is because the therapist who I adore, she's like, you're going to need a support system. So Mm. talk with your immediate family, answer their questions. um, So they understand that you're being very truthful with them. There's nothing that you're trying to hide. You're, you're really just trying to get help. And then, you know, they can be with you together and you can work your way into in-person therapy or, you know, it was one of the potential rather general paths that I was assuming, you know, like, yeah, this is going to be difficult, but you know, it's not like they went through it. They're just hearing about it. And all they're doing is holding my hand while I go through it. Mm -hmm. But it was worse than that. It was now I thought we had it. I thought we were there. And then they believed me less and less. And then they just, they'll get to it later. We'll do it later. Mm -hmm. Oh, just kidding. We just don't talk about it anymore. And, and that moment I lost it. I lost any more. I, I don't want to say I lost it. I don't want to say that I went crazy because I didn't. Mm-hmm. I just ran out of strength. Mm-hmm. And like I said, when, when I became so floorless, I just realized that I'm either going to get buried under this pain or I'm going to have to use it as a soapbox. So I posted in September of 2018 And I said, I'd rather, whatever the backlash may be, I guess I'd rather have a truth-induced backlash than to continue to live in this invisible prison of silence or something like that. Right. 
So I said, you know what, let the chips fall where they may. And of course, when I say let the chips fall where they may, I was deeply hoping that the chips were going to fall with my extended family coming to my rescue (laughs) or people who know my immediate family saying, whoa, immediate family. She seems that she really needs help. And how can we help you guys heal? I was hoping that that's how it would go. But it didn't really matter. I was like, I don't even care. I can't even, I can't care anymore because I cared so much. And now I am in outer space with no tether. And I, I don't know where my planet is. So I posted and uh, the cousins were reaching out one here and there. Okay. Texting, maybe an email, nothing on the social media where anybody could see. Okay. But I was getting some texts and letters of support. Like, oh my God. You're yeah. very brave. I can't believe you had to go through this. Yeah. Um, I hope you guys can heal. You know, it's letters of support. On the older generation, which is all the adults now, extensions of my mother's, my mother sure. and father. So all my mothers and fathers, those people. Yeah. I find out later that they all got together wow. to discuss this. And I find out later that they all couldn't believe what I had done to my immediate family by reporting this. And I was somewhat cared for, like I reached out to one of these people of this generation and said, what's going on? How come there's just radio silence? Like what's going on? Yeah. And this particular person said, you know, well, I really feel for you. Boy, oh boy, do I feel bad for you. What a terrible thing you had to go through some real, I felt like it was really, she she cared and felt bad. And then the next, whatever it was, week or day or however long it was, uh, coming up on Thanksgiving, then she said, sorry, we're just going to have to ask you to sit this one out. Wow. I have people that just won't, they won't come if you're there. Wow. Because, so I'm going to choose them. I have people who won't come. And I don't know what that was, one person or six people or everybody. It wasn't made clear. All I know is that once again, here it is. I'm telling the truth and I am told we can't believe what you've done. It's it's an extension of the nightmare of the sure. abuse. Of course. All right. Well, then I'm either going to go crazy or I'm going to become an activist for this. Mm-hmm. That's all there is. It feels like activism in any other category. Mm-hmm. You are mistreated and you're told to shut up and be grateful. Yeah. You're shamed into silence all over again. But yeah. I mean, like any other course of activism, it mm-hmm. feels the same way of like, you should be grateful for the things you do have. Mm-hmm. You know, don't talk about any mistreatment. Don't talk about no justice. Don't talk about no, right. nobody believing you. Don't talk right. about that. Right. And you, like, you want to just focus on the good things, focus on the good things. I'm trying to heal myself here. Oh, well, when you bring up the healing, you want to heal. You know what you're doing? You're destroying everybody else in the meantime. Oh, no, I'm not. I'm trying to survive here right. and I need your help. And I'm not going to be gaslit into thinking that when I ask for help, that I'm, I, the word narrative was thrown at me. This is, oh, well, you know, I know. Oh, I hear you, Jenny. That's your narrative. Oh, really? Like, narrative? That doesn't, doesn't narrative to you mean you're bending the story to make it serve you? I was yeah. like, narrative. So I do the post. I stand up for other people who are in my position. I end up getting many texts, Facebook messages, direct messages online, thanking me 
supporting me, telling me their private, private, private stories, saying that they've never told anybody this story before, or a very similar situation where they did tell their family in their adulthood, and then everybody knew, and then nobody did anything, and everybody has to be in the twilight zone together on holidays. With the response she got from her Facebook friends, was there a sense that she was starting to feel heard? There certainly was, and I didn't feel so alone, and I appreciated, obviously, every comment, bunches of comments, but the only people that have been in my guts since the beginning are my family members. Sure. And so I feel like they they have been, they used to be the pillars for me, especially with the unorthodox upbringing that I had, Mm -hmm. we traveled all the time and there were only a few constants in my life. The constants were my family members that we would see a couple times a year when we would be touring through that part of the country. So those people who had that permanence and were sort of my pillars, especially the women, the older women in my life, um, I've seen them kind of all as my mothers Mm -hmm. and to have them all sort of do the block out thing has really overly mattered to me you know like I'm working that's part of what I'm processing through now is whoops I guess I put too many eggs in that basket you know um and I really am having to turn to the the family as some people talk Mm -hmm. to the family made of friends um I felt like I had these mothers who I still idolize somehow. I still look up to them. There's so many great qualities about all of them. And like, I've seen them come through so much and they, they still inspire me. But this very tender, infectious boil in my guts has been very, very important. And I really thought that people would get that. I thought that I had communicated how much of myself was sort of teetering yeah. on this. And so... When I was like, teeter-totter, I need some help to stabilize this thing. And then they all sit so hard on the one side of the teeter, they fling me into the next, you know. Back out into outer space. Solar system. Yeah. yeah. Um, They're doing it in self-preservation. I get it. It's an embarrassing story. One would think a girl turned into a woman comes forward, says, help. (laughs) This is a scary thing. You'd think that people would go, Oof, that's rough. Let's do this together. I have cousins that have, I have people in my generation in the family who have come forward for political, you know, support or artistic support, mm-hmm. or uh, one that just came out saying, you know, that she's going to start working with eating disorders, you know, working for an eating disorder clinic. The whole family I see on social media is like, so proud of you. So amazing. Everybody's very proud of these people for standing up for themselves. So what does a person do when what you're standing up for is something that happened with the family that makes the family look bad? Yeah, that is the cause. The cause is incest. The cause is normalized silence. So as not to embarrass the family. I also just think uh, we don't have the tools. We don't have the skills. Wasn't there an attempt at some sort of family therapy? Yes. So uh, spearheaded by my sister who lives in a different state, she was like, look, 
let me gather up all of our insurance information. Let me gather up people in network. Let me gather up everybody's schedules. Let me find a therapist. I will come in person to the, where you guys live. I mean, she was very, very proactive and she's continued to be, um, in the most recent therapy session that we did have, Mm -hmm. I understand that my brother did have a one-on-one, a short one-on-one with the group therapist. Oh, And he opted to walk out of the room. I wasn't there. He opted to walk out to not talk with the family. He wasn't ready to do that. But in the one-on-one session with the therapist, he had the same sentiment of he was sorry. He admitted Mm -hmm. that it had happened. He felt bad and he wasn't ready to talk. So it's also confusing because I don't understand what the truth is. I'm not willing to just have a face-to-face conversation with him because I don't currently trust Trust. that a full admission is going to be there. And that continues for us adults that have gone through this, especially as children, there is still, even though we know exactly what happened, for some reason, there's a fear that that person is going to gaslight you right here, right now. And because there's so much trauma around the subject, sad to say, I am still susceptible to that gaslighting. It would still wreck me to a certain degree and i am not willing to potentially sit and be gaslit in a situation and have to defend myself in person with a therapist in the room or a family in the room it's just too much for me still so so it still feels unsafe dangerous yes dangerous to be with him yes not dangerous like he's going to violate me but the gaslighting of whatever his justifications are to try to get in there even though i know what happened i know the truth of course He's still a family member and he's yeah. still in the woof and warp of my guts right. my whole life. You know, right. this is my, my sibling, you know, um, I had one other member of the older generation over this past Christmas mm-hmm. say to me, Jenny, I just want to tell you this on the side. I want you to know all this shit that's going on with your, with your mom and all the rest of the people. I want to let you know I'm on your side. I get where you're coming from. I'm on your side, 100%. And I started to tear up. I couldn't believe it because nobody from that generation is standing up for me at all. So this person says this to me and I start to cry and say, thank you. Wow, I really? And then this person says, but you can't tell anybody. If you tell anybody that I support you, I will deny it 100%. Wow, wow. And I sat there wow. not knowing what to do with my adult self. Yeah. <laughs> I just I sat there so like, sorry. what? Yeah. And so I, I said, thank you because those words, you know, mean a lot to me. Well, I just, I was no. so dumbfounded. Yeah. Like, wait. So then I wondered if everybody is doing this, if there's a group sense that, if any one of these adults speaks out, they're going to get kicked out of the mm. mean girl click at the lunch table. Yeah. Like I have been. Right. And it further shocks me that these adults, this generation that I have held up as idols and mentors and all these people that I've looked up to, it further upsets me that, that none of them have the spine to stand up saying, Hey, you know, 
uh, can we just break this down here? We had yeah. somebody who was abused and not heard. Right. So how about we focus on hearing the abused person and knock it off with the, oh boy, this looks bad for the family bullshit. They're to this day expecting me to apologize for, to them. for embarrassing the family. Wow. They're still to this day waiting for an apology from me for being public about this story. Do you think you can heal, continue your healing without you hearing an apology or an acknowledgement from your brother? I hope that someday he does what he needs to heal himself. Being in denial of it or whatever is not going to serve him. I hope that he, for his sake, I hope he says he's sorry to me. Right. For his own healing, I hope he says something to me and gets the proper amount of therapy and whatever issue he knows himself the best of all people. So I hope he gets what he needs. And I can visualize us easily with an apology and him letting me know that he's, you know, working on, you know, like just, I don't know, saying he's doing something about it. He's something like that. Great. I'd feel like, okay, let's work on uh, being siblings again. Yeah. And the power has shifted to be equal, right. you know, it's not, I'm scared of whatever. There's no, I'm right. not scared anymore of him or any of the truth because the truth is the truth. And that's what happened. And now I'm talking about it. The harder one actually to move on from here, the one that's actually causing the most processing and therapy dollars is how the family has reacted yeah, right. to my telling the truth. And right. that's been the biggest blow because you know, that's, that has been my safety net, has been the family. I've just come to the conclusion that this dozen people, maybe total, who are um, for some reason frightened to stand up for the person who had this happen to them, in this case, me, um, this dozen people that are trying to shame and punish me for speaking out about it are not as important as I mean they're important I'm saying their feelings of embarrassment are not as important yeah as the hundreds and thousands and millions of people who potentially could hear me say this story mm -hmm. and feel not alone and go oh my god I've never told anybody about it because I thought nobody would believe me which is where everybody is. Mm -hmm. They're in silence because they think nobody's going to believe them. Mm -hmm. Well, I believe you. Sue believes you mm -hmm. and a bunch of other people believe you. Mm -hmm. And those people, even if it's just two people, one person, that is light years more important yeah. than my concern of this dozen people's embarrassment for me telling the truth about telling the truth. Right. <laughs> I'm telling the truth about what happened when I told the truth. So where do things stand now? The whole thing is in progress. It's in process. Um, in the meantime, though, I only speak out about it when it feels like I need to or when it feels like the world needs me to. Um, actually, Sue, I never want during this whole thing it to sound like a, like a detailed revenge story, you know? It does not sound like that at all. Okay. It sounds like a cry for help. It sounds like a, I'm not being listened to. I'm not being heard. That's what it sounds like. And for someone like me who has not gone through it, but hearing your story, my sense of wanting to 
protect that six-year-old, that 16-year-old, that 40-year-old, and to say, you are so loved, you are so heard, I'm so sorry about all this dismissal upon dismissal upon dismissal, and even when you're reaching out, that you're not getting that reciprocated, your courage and your and being brave to tell your story is helping me gain this huge insight and add to my level of empathy and compassion for all of the kids that have gone through this and are now adults trying to navigate through all that pain. Okay. Well, that's good. And, you know, (laughs) hearing somebody say those words of just um, hearing that reflection back is healing to me because that's not what I hear from my family. Hush now, little baby, hush now, little girl, hush now, little baby, little one. Jennifer singing a lullaby she wrote for her children. As you drift off to sleep into a slumber deep, I hope you'll keep me beside you hush now little baby hush now little one holly is a licensed psychologist and registered art therapist who teaches art therapy courses at the adler graduate school including courses in grief and loss issues children and adolescents and family systems She has over 30 years of therapy experience working with children and families, as well as women impacted by complex trauma. I asked Holly to share her perspective about child sexual abuse in general, and Jennifer's experience in particular. Where I would want to start is to acknowledge her and her courage, her strength, her um, tenacity, and that she is coming from this place of wanting not only healing for herself, but healing support and prevention for other little girls out there. And so I very much want my intention to be aligned with that. So what exactly does child sexual abuse encompass? The World Health Organization came up with a definition that I think is helpful. They define child sexual abuse as the involvement of a child in sexual activity that he or she does not fully comprehend, is unable to give informed consent to, or for which the child is not developmentally prepared and cannot give consent, or that violates the laws or social taboos of society. Mm-hmm. I think that's a useful definition because sometimes people get hung up on, well, did you tell him no? And we need to remember that developmentally, the child is not capable of informed consent. Mm-hmm. So I wanna start with saying that very explicitly. Uh, sibling 
sexual abuse is defined as a range of sexual behaviors in childhood that take place between siblings and cannot be considered a manifestation of age-appropriate curiosity. So getting into that distinction is important that mm -hmm. yes, sexual curiosity is a normal thing in children, but sibling sexual abuse is distinct from that. And some of the distinguishing characteristics that we can be clear about, why isn't this just normal sex play and no big deal? One of the things is that normal sex play usually takes place between same age peers or close in age siblings. So when there's a, an age discrepancy of more than a year or two, mm -hmm. that begins to fall outside the norm. Um, sex play also tends to be a briefer, experimental curiosity, but it is not usually long-lasting. Mm -hmm. And another very clear difference is that people take turns and reverse roles. Mm -hmm. Both people are initiating, it's playful. If it's always the same person initiating, that's different. Mm -hmm. And if the felt experience of the person who is not initiating is fear or sadness or dread, that's not play. There's often also a power differential. Right. And so if the older child is stronger, more knowledgeable, more perceived as an authority, they're exploiting a power differential. Mm -hmm. And they're doing something that has long-term repercussions for everybody in the family, not just the two who are involved. Mm -hmm. The perpetrator is harmed, the recipient of the abuse is harmed, any other siblings, all the family members are impacted by the abuse, and especially abuse that runs a course over a long period of time. When abuse is disclosed, that's a crisis for a family. You know, some of the really common responses are either that didn't happen at all, period, you know, I don't believe you, or it did happen, but it's really not that serious, no big deal, and please stop talking about it. And it's a process, you know, it takes a long time. So if the family can comprehend that it did happen, it is serious, then they are set on a journey mm -hmm. that, and everybody needs help and support right. to navigate that successfully. And the reactions to the abuse within Jennifer's family? A lot of sort of judgment about, well, but she should not have gone public with this. Right. And it was a betrayal of the family to be so very public about the disclosure without really recognizing that she really didn't have a good option. Mm -hmm. 
to stay silent and go on as if nothing had happened would be a self-betrayal. Right. My hope would be that people could soften a little bit and understand that part. Silence and going on as if nothing happened replicates those years of silence in childhood. And she can't do that now. She must not do that now. And also this intention about I, Jennifer, want to bring something good Mm -hmm. by going public with this story. I understand that there's embarrassment and feelings of exposure in the family, but I really want to bring about some good here because so much has already been lost. So much harm has already happened, Mm -hmm. at least if I can give it some meaning and some purpose Mm -hmm. and have something good happen that will be healing too. So if anybody can hear any of that, I think that would be great. I think sometimes speaking out is intrinsically valuable just from a standpoint of self-respect. Yeah. That I, from a place of self-respect, cannot be silent in this moment. I also think that sometimes we're heard in ways that maybe go beyond just the, you know, the immediate family. She's heard by other people who read and respond to her online, or she's heard within her community of friends. And I do hear in the story that people in her family, not everybody, are working at hearing her. Jennifer shared a new development. Her mother, after guidance from a therapist, now fully believes her. It was simple. One child went into the other's bed repeatedly. Her mom's new acceptance is big. The extended family, though, is still reluctant. What I would say is when there's a development, it's sort of like a little sprig of crocus coming out of the ground. Like that's a starting point. Yeah. A development is hopeful. Yeah. It's hopeful that the mother has moved to being able to say very directly and clearly. And I hear, not only do I believe you, but I get that this is serious. Yeah. And I would add the word yet. The mother in a way is saying, I can't do anything about the rest of the family yet. I can't more actively take steps to support you yet. Mm -hmm. Um, My hope is that people continue in process. We can love both of them and recognize that this was damaging to both of them and still hold him accountable that this was not okay. Yeah. You know, it's not about choosing, but can we have some compassion for all the ways that everyone in the family has suffered, including the brother? So can healing really happen while she's being surrounded by resistance? She is healing. I think we get into these dichotomies about broken or whole, Mm -hmm. and she ultimately will be both. Nobody can give her back her innocence Mm -hmm. and all those years that this went on and that she wasn't just freed up to be a kid. 
nobody can give those things back. But what she can have is understanding and support and establishment of safety and trust and a connection with herself and a reclaiming of her own body. All of that, um, she is in the process of healing. If you are a survivor wanting help to break the silence and be heard, please contact RAIN, R-A-I-N-N, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, the nation's largest anti-sexual violence organization. RAIN created and operates the 24-7 National Sexual Assault Hotline, 1-800-656-4673, or visit www.rain2ends.org. RAIN is in partnership with more than 1,000 local sexual assault service providers across the country. I so admired Jennifer's courage to bring her personal experience out into the open, and I am honored that she felt safe enough to share her journey with us. And my prayer is that everyone listening will surround her and lift her up in love. Jennifer told me about an author, activist, and incest survivor named Anne M. Lauren, who shares her story of childhood trauma and recovery through writing and public speaking. Anne wrote a blog post in February for the website incestaware.org titled, Let the Next Wave Be Hope, Navigating the Sea of Healing as an Incest Survivor. At the close of this post, Anne writes, If you're a survivor, commit first to self-care. That will always be enough. If you ever feel the stirring in your belly of new and unknown currents and want to join this tumultuous sea that has become me, that has become us, then we welcome you here. Heal out loud. If you're an ally, you belong too. Listen out loud. Show us safety and correct our experiences of violence with patience and love. Learn to hold the weight of our stories so we mustn't bear it alone. We are the fight and the freedom, the belief and the belonging, the rest and the recovery, the realization of hope. I can't ever promise safety, but I can always promise that we will be brave, for we are not alone. Together, we are home. Easy now, baby. Easy now, everything's gonna be alright. Jennifer with her husband Joe on guitar. Easy now, baby. Gonna make it through the night. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you for letting us in. You have inspired us to support you and other survivors by believing you and listening out loud. And thank you, Holly, for your expertise and your compassion. Thank you also, Tony, for your mastering mojo and Hannah for your assistance. You can find out more about our guests and Jennifer's music in the credits for this episode on our website, islandofdiscardedwomen.com. 
The rain info and hotline number will also be listed on our website. So while we're patiently waiting to be vaccinated, we will continue to do these from home episodes. And because of this, we've asked for your support to help pay our creative team. I am so touched by all of you who have chipped in so far and want to send a special thank you to our new donors who have given since the release of our last episode. Raluca O, Barbara G, Terry E, Jerry and Judith I, Virginia M, Jane McD, Janet B, Cynthia R, Cornelia W, and Serene L. If you would like to help, you can donate any amount at our website. Again, that's islandofdiscardedwomen.com. All donors get a 20% discount from Flip em the Bird. When you don't have the words, let your gloves say it for you. Shop their fingerless gloves, knit hats, and hoodies at flipandthebird.com. Please get those shots, and we'll be back soon with another episode of Island of Discarded Women. Thank you, everybody. I'm Sue. Find a place to rest your head Even if it's not